For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to a special Slate podcast with the founding editors of Double X, Slate's longtime women's section. I'm joined today by Emily Bazelon, now a writer for The New York Times Magazine. Welcome, Emily. Hey, Julia. Thank you. And Megan O'Rourke, a critic and poet and the author of the recent poetry collection, Sun in Days. Welcome, Megan. Hello. And by Hannah Rosen, now one of the hosts of NPR's Invisibilia. Welcome, Hannah. Hi. It's so fun to have you three in a virtual studio together. And of course, our regular listeners know that you guys each pop up Regular, extremely regularly or very regularly on various other Slate podcasts, including Double X, the Political Gab Fest, and the Audio Book Club. Um, but we're here today to talk about Double X. We've gathered for an Irish wake of sorts. We have just announced here at Slate that we are closing Double X. The section, which began as a Slate blog, XX Factor, during Hillary Clinton's first campaign for the presidency, then launched as a standalone site before taking its place on Slate proper, has fostered some of the best work Slate has ever published and some of the sharpest voices over the past decade, among them Amanda Hess, Christina Cotarucci, and Ruth Graham. But at a moment when matters of gender are vital to our coverage of news, politics, culture, and technology, and when there's a hunger for family and lifestyle coverage for and by readers of all genders, we've decided to pull up stakes on the idea of an editorial section that carves out womanhood as a particular focus. We'll continue to cover matters pertaining to gender in our news section and across the magazine, and we'll feature parenting and lifestyle issues in a new section called Human Interest, intended for readers of any gender. The Double X podcast, which Hannah still hosts, will continue as an audio outpost of smart and lively conversation among women that you three helped cultivate nearly a decade ago. Uh, I'm enlisting you today to help give Double X the loving send-off it deserves and also to convene a classic Double X XX Factor style conversation about where women stand today. It's been an eventful couple of years and months and even weeks on that front. Uh, but let's start with the history. Uh, Megan, tell us a little bit about the origins of Double X in the XX Factor blog. I'm so interested, Hannah and Emily, to see if we all remember this the same way. But um you know, in anticipation of our conversation, I've been nostalgically, you know, over my hot chocolate, thinking about those those original days. And my memory of it <clears throat> is that we started XX Factor, the blog. It, the the idea germinated for it during one of our Slate retreats. Um, it was the lead up to the 2008 election. And as I remember, Emily, we were talking about how so much of the political coverage at Slate in the world was written by men. And yet here we had this female strong female primary candidate, Hillary Clinton. Um, and it seemed odd to us that the, the the coverage was being written almost exclusively by men. And we started talking about creating a space where women would write about the election. Um, and in my recollection, you know, I think one thing I said at the time is I would love to write about politics, but I'm not a policy, you know, a policy nerd or a politics nerd either. And I I don't feel I'm as informed as some, you know, people who are career political writers, but I have so many thoughts and feelings about what's happening in the election right now. Um, you know, Hillary crying, the backlash to that, all all of those things that were, um, I don't know if that had already taken place, but that were in the air. 
Um, and so to me, the space of the double X factor was really exciting because I think I felt comfortable writing. It was like a way of dipping my toe into the water. Um, and what I remember, and I'm curious if you remember this, is that from the very beginning, it was not designed as a space for women to read. It was designed as a space for everyone, men included, to read, but where the voices were primarily women's and focusing with a focus on issues that might be of particular concern to women, but really were of concern to everybody. Um, and that was what was really exciting about it in those early, early days to me. Yeah, I do remember it similarly. And I also remember feeling like it was a collective enterprise. Um, yes. I mean, Dahlia Lithwick was really instrumental in the beginning, and there are a bunch of other women who are also with us, right? Like Dana Stevens and Emily Yaffe and other people who I'm Anne sure. Holbert. Yeah, Anne Holbert, Rachel Larimore. Yeah, yeah, a group of us. And I think that it had this feeling of thinking out loud and of processing all these things that had never really come up in a big presidential election before because Hillary Clinton was the candidate. And actually, even before then, or actually, no, I'm getting the, the timeline mixed up. After um, Hillary Clinton lost the nomination to Barack Obama, Sarah Palin was the vice presidential candidate. And so that also raised all these gender issues. I feel like, Han, I remember a piece you wrote about like the mama bear, or the grizzly bear. Grizzly mama. Mm. And I think there was just this way in which I remember being hungry for conversation among women. Yeah. And Megan, I remember worrying a little bit about how since we were all responding to each other constantly, I wasn't even sure how readable it would be. I mean, now we're right. so used to that from social media, but this was really pre-Twitter. Right. And it was very threaded. I mean, that was to me the really exciting thing about it was that it was a place, as you're saying, of conversation, collaboration, and kind of being able to talk in a different mode or register, which was one of thinking out loud. and combatively sometimes thinking out loud, um, but thinking out loud. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. That kind of threaded back and forth. Uh, weirdly, social media facilitates it happening on social media, but makes it a little bit harder for it to happen within the pages of any particular outlet just because of the kind of vernacular of how we share conversation and dialogue the, these days. The blog has slightly <laughs> faded as a moment, right? I definitely remember we didn't know how to write. It's not that we didn't know what to write or what we thought about things, but we didn't know what tone to strike. So right. there was like a hesitant, you know, am I am I allowed to am I allowed to mention the children? Am I allowed to am I allowed to um, you know, write from a personal perspective? Like like we were a little you know, because Slate has an, an established tone. We're like, well, are we supposed to be like our bodies ourselves here? Or like right. what is, you know, <laughs> we weren't sure. Are we supposed to address each other's by name? Like, am I supposed to say, well, Dahlia, I disagree because blah, 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 blah. Or are we supposed to be very skeptical or is it supposed to have a sisterhood feel like? It was very hesitant at first. But it kind of quickly found, I think, a, a freewheeling energy. And I do remember exactly what you're talking about of being like, do I say, well, as Anne wrote, or do I say, well, Anne, I don't disagree. You know, I, I agree with this, but not that. Yeah. But it felt like somehow, and maybe this is my rosy colored lenses. But I remember that hesitancy, especially formally. And then I remember just the delight of just getting into it and being able to think alongside all of you. And what a pleasure and kind of surprise that was to me because I had been writing for a long time. And I thought of myself as a very comfortable writer, someone who was, you know, really had no problems putting my opinions out there. Um, but there was something different about this. And I wonder if that's true for you. I think I felt emboldened to take some kinds of risks that 
I wouldn't have taken otherwise to be more uncertain, you know, in Slate, especially in that day and age, it was the contrarian certainty, um, but to be maybe uncertain in a way that was productive, it felt like to me at the time. Um, and I wonder if you felt that. I totally get that feeling you're describing and the safety was in the collective. I have it a little bit now because I'm working in radio. So you kind of work collectively on things. It's much more of a collaboration. And the way blogs were done then, like if you think of Andrew Sullivan's blog, it would be him trying things out. I mean, blogs were for trying things out in conversation with an audience. And I, I think we did a similar thing, but we were trying things out on each other. And so it was just a little safer to do it that way rather than to throw it out into the world and get the bites back. Uh, we did it in our space. Now, of course, people were reading, people were eavesdropping on this conversation, but it didn't actually feel that way when you tried out an idea. I felt like I was trying it out with you guys. One other thing it allowed for was this real um, range of views. You know, I think uh, just as we saw in this past election, there were a range of perspectives on Hillary and you guys were able to surface both the excitement of having a serious female candidate, the um, sort of disappointment that that serious female candidate was the um, complicated wife of a complicated former president uh, and and it allowed the section to not have a party line of any kind, which I think is maybe more of a problem on today's Internet than on the Internet of 2008, which was, I think, a little bit more of an exploratory place. But um, even for the Internet of that age, I feel like the range of views batted around um, was part of what made it so exciting to read. I mean, weren't we also making it safe for each other to focus on gender and women's issues without yeah. feeling like we were hurting, right? I mean, I remember yeah, totally. myself feeling uncertain about how much I could, how what percentage of my writing output should be about those issues before I sort of risked like ghettoizing myself. And so I think the fact that we were all holding hands and doing it together made it easier. And obviously, we were doing it at a time where this was happening elsewhere on the internet. I mean, Jezebel was up and running at, in particular. And there were and, uh, you know, places like Feministing were either already there on the way. I can't quite remember the sequence. And it just started to feel like there were places where women's ish, the feminist blogosphere was becoming a player in the world in a different way. And we were trying to be a part of that, but also do something distinct. Although I have to say I was never totally comfortable with it. And, and, the, and the reason I knew that is because when the three of us would sit down and do interviews with other people about, you know, why do you want to start a lady blog? What is this for? What does this mean? I felt like I could never exactly articulate or answer that question well. Yeah. For me, there was a real distinction between XX Factor and the launch of Double X. Um, I never had that hesitation about XX Factor. I felt like it was very clear to me why it existed. It was because there was this paucity of, you know, women writing about politics. It also allowed us, as you're saying, Emily, I think, to focus our our pieces in a slightly different way or to pitch pieces that we might not have. I remember writing a piece about the eros of Sarah Palin during the RNC mm -hmm. convention, which I don't think I would have ever written. That was a full-length piece. So it sort of just it created a space for us. But I do think when, um, and I think in those early days of the, of the blog, I think Jezebel had just started. I think the blog started a few months after Jezebel was launched. Feministing had been around for a while. 
It also was fun to write in the blog form, right? It let us play with tone and voice. That's part of that safety I'm talking about. But when then, then when we made this shift to double X, I think it raised a different set of questions, which started to get into the questions about if we have a whole magazine that's around women's issues, but we're kind of writing in some places about things that we would expect everyone to want to read about, why is it a separate entity? And, and that raised questions for me in a way that XX Factor are being hosted in Slate didn't. And, you know, some of those answers were external to us, right? They were Slate wanted to branch out. And this was this going enterprise and Jezebel and feministing and all these places were doing really well. And so it was sort of, on the one hand, from a business perspective, a natural step and almost a natural step editorially, but maybe not quite. I mean, I think I shared your I shared your hesitations and questions about how do we make Double X work as an entity separate from Slate? That felt very different to me from having XX Factor within Slate, if that makes sense. So then the three of us edited that separate site, which was still connected to Slate, right? And a lot of the content. Wait, can we just say how weird it was that the three of us chose to do it? (laughs) I think that's the best part. (laughs) Wait, wait. I I, want to ask you about this. Wait, I want to hear. I want to get back to to that question, Emily, but I want to hear. (laughs) I think we were holding hands and taking a jump together. Yeah, we were. How did it come out? come to be that you guys were a trio of consensus-based co-editors. I mean, I will say, like, sometimes people ask me, oh, what's it like to be a female editor? And I'm always like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm the editor of a site, and I'm me. And, right. uh, you know, if that that probably has effects good and ill, and I don't know to what degree they have anything to do with my gender. And you don't sound super interested in analyzing it either, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting like, that? I'm just me. I'm like, jaded, bored. Well, it's not bored. No, I mean, I feel like so... Um, I feel amazed at the fact of it and that it is still striking how few women leaders there are in so many different professions and um, acknowledging of the marker that it is without necessarily feeling like it plays a huge role in the day to day. But it does feel almost like a cliche of like, okay, and then the three women are going to collaboratively work. <laughs> and they're going to do away with all hierarchy and structure. <laughs> it was a feminist long- utopia. It we was. moved into a cabin in the woods. Our bodies ourselves. We did do some waxing of one another. <laughs> we had babies together too. <laughs> Hannah had a baby actually. That was true. But I don't think either of us really helped with Gideon. Megan. I have maybe, but long after. No, but it wasn't a feminist utopia because they essentially took one salary and split it into three. <laughs> You're just being idiots. What? Well, as I recall, this the idea for Double X the magazine also came about at Slate Retreat, and Jacob kind of posed it to us, maybe? Yeah, and it was Jacob's idea. It was Jacob's idea. And I was, I had transitioned from editing the Slate Culture section to writing, and I was pretty interested in mostly writing. And I, I know I didn't want to do a full-time editing job. Um, and so I've, I think Jacob was like, would you want to do it with Emily and Hannah? <laughs> and I was like, actually, that sounds amazing. Because it, it, in a way, I don't know, I was more interested in the conversation than in having to run something um, on my own at that point. But I don't, do you remember, Emily, how it how it came about. I think that's right. And I remember feeling like there was, no, I mean, not that this was offered to me, I don't think, but I can't, I wouldn't have wanted to do it on my own. To me, like a lot of the appeal of it was the collaborative nature of it. Although then obviously like that was great and had difficult aspects um, to it as well. But it just felt, I, I, it's also my personality. Like I wouldn't have trusted my own editorial taste or judgment enough, but I have lots of respect for you, both of you. So that 
part of it was very attractive to me. I mean, that that was part of what made the voice of it so distinct in that standalone iteration, again, was that it really centered this kind of sophisticated conversation among smart, uh, interesting brains figuring it all out together. And so seeing what you guys um, made of the notion of a women's magazine was, again, completely thrilling as a reader and a project. I'm, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to 2008 or 2009. Nine was when I kept being like, it's not a women's magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, that was a big part of the only, I remember I said to Jacob, and then this was a big part of, I think, the conversation we all had and I found myself returning to over and over was that, you know, as it started to take shape and it, you know, some of the kind of business pressures are to make it look more and more like a conventional women's magazine. To me, you know, what I had said was, I don't want to run a women's magazine. I want to, you know, help run a magazine that's by women for everybody. And I think we spent a long time trying to come up with like a tagline that would include men. Do oh. you guys remember this? Yes. Oh the naming, I totally remember naming that. Naming and logo problems were. Yeah, that was like, really the, hard. I mean, the fact really that we ended up with double convey, X as like, our name was right. like, was right, hard. a sort of yeah. act of desperation. We thought we were choosing something incredibly straightforward, which of course, in retrospect, seems like it left out a lot of people, people. who decide yeah, to exactly. transition right. to becoming female and don't have two X chromosomes. Oops. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be hard to imagine... I mean, first of all, just the visibility of trans issues make it um, make the name no longer seem as inclusive as it once did. And I don't think anyone ever liked the name. No, no, we <laughs> tried to come up I with a name. I think it was name. a compromise in which it was always the, the the choice that some people were okay with. Well, <laughs> I wish I could remember what our alternate names were. I was trying to remember that Ruffian. the other day. I can definitely Moxie. Ruffian was mine. Moxie, jeez, that's a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to name it after the female racehorse who didn't let any male in front of her. <laughs> oh, right. I remember that. Maybe Ruffian. that would have been great. Oh, yeah. I loved her. Um, <laughs> there's not enough racehorse-based <laughs> magazine naming terminology. Clearly. Someday my magazine will exist. <laughs> That's great, right, Megan. Go start the ruffian. I'll read the ruffian. <sighs> it's true that, um, yes, the double X has uh, had some aesthetic qualms around it was a little bit difficult from a business perspective to sell because the two X's made some people think it was a porn site. And then now it turns <laughs> we out... We didn't even think about that. No, time, now it turns out to potentially <laughs> also be have. transphobic. Insulting. So, yeah. Exactly. I mean, and, Terrific. And the, yeah. All right. Well, so the name, maybe we would do differently. I mean, the other thing that I think is striking is that um, if we were to be launching a standalone site by women in 2018, we wouldn't have it done by three white women. I'm curious how no. you guys thought about race at the time. We thought about it in terms of writers. I mean, we definitely were, I think, as I recall, thinking about that um, in terms of looking for writers of different backgrounds, color, et cetera, ethnicity. Yeah. I think you're right. We never would have done it the same way. I think that about the podcast, too. It's just not it's not an interesting way to do yeah. something now, and we're much more aware of it. Well, and also it left, it limited the range right. of opinions right. and writings and views and perspectives in a way that was, you know, the site was poorer for it. Though I think you're right that we did try to look for contributors. Yeah. But, you know, that strikes me as being true even of the blog, right? Because Obama was also a primary candidate, and I don't think we had a lot of discussion about race as well as gender on the on X Factor. Yeah, it was a way of kind of focusing on one of the lenses right. and, and but, not but, one of the others. Right, and not one of the others. I mean, I think there's just a continuing tension here, and, and we feel this in the change we're making at Slate now, too, which is when you create a space, 
either to focus on matters pertaining to gender or that particularly facilitates different kinds of contributions from women writers, you do amplify those voices and issues. You make you create the hole that you have to fill with stuff about women, stuff about stuff by women. You know, you you I'm, I'm aware in making this change at Slate that we'll certainly be losing that pull and pressure to do that work. And I think the team we have and the writers we have and the set of interests that we're um, focusing on now, I'm confident that we'll be able to do it. But, you know, then there's the flip side of what does it mean to have these live in a separate place and be kind of apart. And I'm curious to hear you guys talk about that. So there was XX Factor, which launched in 20, 2007. X launched as a standalone site short planned before and launched shortly after the financial crisis in 2008, not uh, um, I think the plan was pre-financial crisis and the launch was in early 2009. And then at the end of 2009, we folded it back into Slate, I think largely for business reasons. It was just a, a tough time to launch a new standalone business. Um, but as you guys worked through that era and those shifts, how did you think about that tension of, of what kinds of conversations you were able to launch that you think would have been hard to do in the pre- previous roles you'd had at Slate and elsewhere um, and what were some of the constraints? I mean, I don't remember feeling constrained beforehand. I think I we all felt a little nervous about the standalone aspect of it. Not it was exciting, like it was fun to have our own project, and we were proud of it. But I think all of us just in this conversation have expressed a kind of philosophical set of hesitations about being off in our own space as women. And I don't think we ever totally reconciled our feelings about that. Um, So it was like we were producing content we were happy about, but the package for it um, was less important. And I remember feeling basically pretty relieved when we folded the, um, the separate site back into Slate. But I don't know, maybe I'm like, you know, changing that in retrospect. Do you, Megan and Hannah, I, do you guys remember? I, so I totally, you put that so well. And I mean, I, I feel so much love and tenderness toward both X Factor and Double X. And I, I definitely want to say that. But I think, you know, it is interesting that it wasn't any of our ideas to turn X Factor into its own site, right? That that, that was not, I think, what we would have come up with necessarily on our own, even though it was so galvanizing and fun and just kind of wonderful, as you said, to think about having a space to curate. Um, what I remember is thinking that not feeling not knowing I felt constrained as a writer beforehand, but thinking that what was fascinating to me as someone who was writing a column about gender issues often, that was kind of part of my column before X Factor was created, was how, and I've said this already, but how creating the space did seem to open up spaces for me as a writer. I hadn't known that I think I was closing off to myself. Um, And I think that the best thing Double X did and the X Factor blog did was to do that, right? Was to kind of stake out a broader space for writers, you know, young women writers to sort of say, I actually am really interested in this. I'm going to go forward and write about it in a way that maybe they wouldn't have elsewhere. But I think when you use the word package, that was a really crucial one, Emily, which is to say, I think I remember one thing we kind of came up against very quickly was we had this vision of a magazine that was by women and for women to read, but also for men, the sort of odd hybrid that didn't really exist in the world. And we kept thinking about magazines like Esquire and um, GQ in their heyday as these kind of literary powerhouses that were seen by everybody as excellent magazines. Yes, they're, you know, tailored toward men, but they're for everybody in some way. 
And I think we were trying to do that. And we just kept running into advertisers' befuddlement, as I recall, that it was almost impossible to kind of create that space, which was to me as an editor shocking because one of the things that's so interesting about editing online and certainly online in the early 2000s was how much possibility there was, how much novelty, how much room there was to kind of define things and make spaces. And yet you say you're doing something run by women, uh, you know, written by women, and it's like it has to look like this. It's a pink triangle. Right. Or it's a pink ribbon. It has to be that you have to have some, you know, column about makeup. You have to have a fashion column. You have to have, you know, these things that I think we were resisting and then also trying to figure out how to do really well. I mean, fashion, I was totally into having something about fashion. But I just remember the kind of like we have to get the makeup advertising and we have to get the this. And so not what Double X was really about. So I remember that being a huge problem. I remember it differently, which is that the constraint had more to do with speed and time than it did with advertisers. Like, I personally was actually really excited about the idea of taking a women's magazine and doing things like fashion differently, which Megan, you were amazing at, just as a writer on Slate, so that you could take something (laughs) like fashion and show people that you could write, which Slate really has done, you know, write about it in, in, in a way that actually mattered the way, say, Robin Givan does at the Washington, or had done at the Washington Post. Um, So it wasn't like, I actually loved the idea that you could take any topic that was traditionally covered by women's magazines and not necessarily, um, not necessarily decimate it, which was how Jezebel did it, which was cool and interesting, but just like do something different with it. And in my memory, it was more like things had to be done <laughs> quickly, you know, like like there wasn't a lot of time. We were all doing other things. Um, and and then to me, what happens with with women's and particularly then sort of blogs or sites is that there's there's a big difference between approaching things from you know, say a woman's perspective or because all of us, if you think about our writing outside double X, you know, we write as women, not all of the time, but like we see the world as women. We write about issues that concern women, just like in your book or in in your writing. Like we all do that. Mm. Um, but the pressure to produce it all the time, kind of a mill of women's mm-hmm. writing, that's that's to me when when then it becomes almost parodic. Like then you're just like like the filter right. on every bit of news is like, well, right. what's the women's angle? And what's, you know, what about this person's hair? And what does this candidate look like? And what about the candidate's wife? And, you know, then you start to sort of move into formula and parody when you have to do it consistently over and over again all the time. Yeah. And you get to a really important aspect of your question, Julia, which is that, you know, I think to be the best kind of writer and to produce the best kind of writing, we can't be putting on the same lens all the time, right? And I do think that's one of the constraints, to go back to your word, um, that something like a kind of specially demarcated women's section does does create. And I think you see this with women's magazines. I mean, one of the big questions people ask all the time is, you know, why are women's magazines not better, right? Why don't they? And sometimes they're, they have actually quite a lot of really good writing and reporting. But there's something about that that relentlessness of the lens, I think that's right, Hannah, that it's a bit parodic in the end or certainly constraining. Is that true of any lens? Um, I And one of the reasons I asked this, I was at a meeting last year about 
trying to increase the number of women who win particular kinds of serious book awards. And as part of the conversation, one of the women writers who was there said in a really dismissive way, the people who come up through the feminist blogosphere like are very limited and that is just not a way to really excel as a writer. And I actually thought that was wrong. Like I could think mm. of 10 examples of people who yeah. are doing excellent work at the top of the field and who've really taken this on as a specialty, but that's different from the package, right? Like you could be, yeah, that's right. you know, someone who that's your beat, but you're in, a, a, you're part of a more cacophonous set of stories and, and um, views and commentary in the publication. I don't know. What, it, what do you guys think about I mean, about that? I, I, that's a really good point because I'm thinking now of Rebecca Traister, who I think is just such a fabulous cultural political critic in all ways and she does have a lens right of, of sort of thinking about women thinking about feminism but you know but maybe it is maybe so I, I love your correction like maybe what i would re-say is when we put on lenses we risk that rigidity we risk kind of narrowing ourselves and that i think it takes a lot and she's a wonderful example to me at least and i don't know how you guys feel of someone who by the way as someone who grew up in the northeast i can't stop saying you guys to everybody um <laughs> sorry <Me too. laughs> but you know she's someone who there's so much flexibility and capaciousness and how she reads situations and her you know, it's almost like she's a reader of the human condition who happens to write about women. Yeah, but it's interesting, too, because there's the relentlessness of the lens for any given writer. There's the relentlessness of the lens if you sort of have a collection of writers putting out at the increasing volume that Internet publishing has increasingly required over the decades since you guys began this initiative. And then there's the efflorescence of blogs by and about woman things um, by women, about women things, I guess, uh, that began around the same time that also create the sense that, you know, you don't have to worry anymore in the same way that nobody's going to call something out or make a certain point. Like there is or has been a pretty robust conversation about matters that concern women online I think probably as the result of the double X and Jezebel and feministing and Hello Giggles and uh, the hairpin. I mean, they've come in every uh, kind of editorial stripe, I think. But um, Right. And if you go back further and you think about the role of Ms. Magazine, which mm. I feel like it would be remiss of us not to notice exactly. it stood alone. But Julia, you were just able to sort of roll off the tip of your tongue. I mean, partly because you are amazing at doing that. Like <laughs> a handful of examples of places. And I do think... That has created a cultural shift. And the one very obvious marker is the way in which, you know, Bill Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky was covered in a very dismissive way right. um, of <laughs> Lewinsky. Gloria Steinem and a few other famous feminists bought into excusing Bill Clinton. And it's unimaginable that that would happen in this era. Now, we still have a president who, you know, is accused of um, a range of sexual misconduct. But the level of outrage, the reaction, the kind of backlash was very strong and, and obviously has contributed to this moment of reckoning we're seeing over sexual harassment, in fact, may be essential to that moment of reckoning. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to ask you guys, how do you think the rise of lady blogging, for lack of a less condescending and crappy term, women's sites and spaces online, um, has changed the conversation around gender in the last 10 years. Do you think it's helped broaden it? Do you think it's uh, stifled it? Do you think it's deepened it? Do you think it's made it more central in other conversations? What What do you think the overall impact has been? 
I think I would say both, you know, that it in some ways has absolutely broadened the conversation. And that's in the way Emily was just saying, our eyes are on you. Uh, we're watching. Nothing will slip through. Um, you can't get away with things. It's it's legitimized kind of big beats and and kind of deep reporting about women's issues. It sort of put them on the map. So you see that at the New York Times, you know, the reporting that Jody Cantor mm-hmm. does or um, <clears throat> the re- it, it, it's not just Jody Cantor. It's like the reporting on Fox News like that. That becomes a kind of subject that's on the list of subjects that is important and we all care about. And I think Ladybug blogs get a lot of credit for that. But then, and we may be passing out of this moment, the kind of whoosh of lady blogs created a sense that there were only certain things you could say. Like there was a moment when you felt yes. like you couldn't say something different than what the lady bo- blogs had deemed that you could say. I think that moment might be passed, but there was that moment. Hmm. I wonder, because in some ways it feels like that moment is more with us again. And Well, that's a separate. Uh, yeah, I mean... There's two things I would want to say. One is that there's a chicken and egg question, right? Because one of the reasons that that Double X came into being and I think that, um, you know, feministing and Jezebel came into being was that there was this appetite, this growing appetite, I think, for thinking about things, you know, by kind of doing close readings of the culture through a gendered lens, by looking at, you know, how the – you know, second wave feminism had led to an 80s backlash, had led to whatever happened in the 90s. And then here we were in in the early 2000s and what was going on, right? And so I think there were a lot of people already doing this work. And in some ways, the the quote unquote lady blogs, I really want to find another word for that, you know, grew out of that. Um, On the other hand, I also think that the fact of them, and this really, I keep thinking about your your task, Emily, of having to think about women who win awards for serious books, because I actually think that's relevant to the work that Double X Factor was doing in the early days, which is that, you know, one of the issues women face, one of the primary issues women face, um, you know, certainly middle class, upper middle class women is unconscious bias, right? I mean, just the the way that women are not taken as serious, the way that women's testimony is dismissed, as we've seen now in the kind of rise of the Me Too movement, you know, the, the decades and decades of silencing of, you know, women who actually spoke were silenced, right? Their their testimonies are not taken seriously. And I think that the really important work that, that the blogs did um, was to kind of create a, a space that demanded to be taken seriously. And I think even the terms like lady blogging show how much the culture pushes back against that, right? right? Let's call I mean, women's sites. Women's something, sites just like places where women, <laughs> we need, I mean, the problem is we literally don't have terminology that kind of lets us, or let's say this, the terminology we use shows us how kind of complicated our feelings about gender really are. Anyway, I just, so I think, you know, on the one hand, it did really important work to kind of push back against unconscious bias, both, you know, on the internalized unconscious bias and the unconscious bias coming to us from the world around. Um, But, you know, when you have a movement or you have sets of voices or you have these kinds of conversations, is there a risk of, you know, of a kind of... Um, consensus settling in and sort of stateness. Well, orthodoxy. Yeah. Orthodoxy, dogma, yeah. I mean, right? I remember, I mean, yeah, I remember writing a piece um, in my, like, column about gender issues about men who didn't want to watch their wives give birth, and I tried to argue that this was okay. <laughs> at your peril, I bet. <laughs> oh, my God. 
<laughs> Katha Pollitt was so mad at me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, in some ways it was a little bit of a, a straw man. But in other ways I thought, well, actually, let's really take this question seriously. Like, let's not assume that those guys are evil guys. Let's think about, like, what's really at stake here in terms of sexuality and domesticity. And I actually think trying to look, look at questions in that kind of open-endedness is really interesting. And I do think sometimes we lose the ability to do that because there is an, an orthodoxy. Well, and the internet more broadly has just become a less hospital place for uh, uncertainty, ambiguity, or let's try this idea on for sizeism. Like it's just it's just a you really have to kind of gird up if you're going to yeah. uh, approach writing in that mode on the internet these days. And various places still try and do it, and we do here, and you guys do in in all of your work in various mediums and fields. <laughs> Can I ask a question that I'm so curious what you all, Julia included, think? So, you know, Julia, you were talking about where we are that's different from, you know, our name, how that wouldn't work now, and just the way that kind of we don't want to, in some sense, corral women's issues into a, a separate place. My question for all of you that I'm really curious about is also, do you think we're in a substantially different place? I mean, do you think, you know, it's 10 years later, is it better? Is it are women writers better positioned? Are we going to see, you know, a flood of female editors running magazines? You know, is this a moment of actual change and difference? And do you think that the work of these sites helped that? Hannah, this is teed up for you, the author of The End of Men. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. I'm really thinking about this because I had it's like you there are things that you it's, it's literally it was flashing in my head. Yes. No. Yes. I know. No. Exactly. Like you'd bring up an example. <laughs> yeah. There'd be sort of like, absolutely. Like, you know, particularly after sexual harassment, there's sort of all these underlying dynamics that people are aware of. There seems to be a moment when the only way to fix them feels like well, just hire more women and put more women in positions of power. Um, but then there are moments mm. when I thought, have things really changed kind of in on a, on a, on a, you know, we were talking about the pres presidential election about politics a lot when XX Factor was started. Has that, I mean, yeah, yes, I do think things have changed. I do think, I don't think they've utterly revolutionized and transformed. But yes, there are conversations and ways of talking in the public sphere that were very prevalent 10 years ago that would be totally unacceptable mm. today. Mm -hmm. um, Monica Lewinsky is one example. Yeah. I think it just kind of blunt sexism around women in power. Uh, that does not include unconscious bias. Um, there's a lot of surfacing of unconscious bias that still has to happen, but a kind of open, open sexism, um, uh, an open, casual sexism, not by sexist, but just kind of in the mainstream. I think that's less acceptable. That's one good thing you get by a kind of policing of people. So, yes, I think. And okay. men's level of fear has risen. <laughs> and I think there are things that, to be said for good. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I think about a lot, I now have two teenage boys and they are very aware that if a girl were to accuse them, God forbid, of some non-consensual something, that that would be terrible trouble for them. And that's true about their friends. Like these high school boys have this awareness of risk and of self-preservation about sex that is totally different from the high school boys of my era. And I feel grateful for that. Although right. Susan Felitti would say that that, you know, that the, that the sort of rise in power would there would be a kind of backlash brewing underneath that. 
you know, underneath that fear. Yes. And there's some evidence in support of that, right? That like as women rise higher, men use the tools they still have to bring them down. And that is something to watch out for. But it is still the case that at least like in the world my boys are growing up in, they have a sense of, you know, the damage to women, of the potential damage to themselves, which I think is like a healthy kind of awareness. And do they experience that? I mean, as someone who's got two boys who are much younger and not yet facing these questions. Just wait, Julia. I, I, I will be, <laughs> I will be ringing this. you up, I'm sure. Yeah. But they don't experience that as some uh, woeful and undue burden. They're just like, yeah, this is life. And, you know, learn. I assume that learning how to deal with the gender you're attracted to in one's high school years is never uh, entirely painless and seamless, but it feels just like part of the landscape in a totally yeah. They're not go- way. they're not like budding men's rights activists, as far as I can tell. <laughs> they seem to be taking it in stride, and I think that they also feel some sense of justice about it. Mm. Which, and I don't mean to like, you know, create them as ideal in some way. They have plenty of unconscious bias that they're carrying around, but I just think their set of assumptions about these issues is totally different from the boys I grew up with in high school and in college. That's so interesting, but it's not. But you don't want them to land at fear. Like where you want them to land is, you know, almost like theory of mind. Yeah, like I like, understand. Exactly. You know, all the awareness apologies would say. The women have had yeah, all the apologies forever. would say. Oh, right. I understand how women. Now I understand how I made these women feel. Right. That was like a stock line in a lot of the <laughs> harassment apologies. You know, to which like women read that and are incredulous. But like, there is something in that. It's like. It's just a theory. Like now I see how the woman is experiencing that. Like if it leads to some kind of connection. Right. Right. But also some shared perception of risk. Right. Like sex can be risky. Women have had to absorb all of that for the most part. And so to have, you know, young men also thinking about risk, Mm -hmm. that seems like a fine sort of division of labor to me. Right. The democratization of it, I think, is right, because I think we don't want to end up just on fear. But I think there is risk involved, as you're saying. And I I do think I love both those points, because I do think part of what young men are having to do is in some ways, they understood women might be feeling these things, but they didn't really have to think about it. They got to think about themselves Mm. more. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the just to go back to your question, Megan, like the in the last 10 years, it feels to me like we're both higher and lower than we were. Like the extremes have gone in both directions. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's an increasing awareness of the subjective experience of women around sex and power. Uh, there's a set of things that just won't fly anymore that shouldn't have flown. And it's great that they don't. And uh, like, I hope that remains true. But I woke up the morning after the election just obliterated. Gutted. And feeling like, oh, I didn't get it. In fact, I'm completely naive to say, oh, it doesn't mean anything that I'm a woman in power. Like every way that every – like the notion that she could have lost to that guy. And yes, she's a flawed person. And yes, we can go back and fight about her book and all the fights that have been happening. (laughs) Blah, 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 blah. Bobby Mook stipulated, et cetera, whatever. Some piece of that of the improbability of that is just there's a lot of people who don't want to give that yeah. amount of clout to a woman. Yeah. I re- and and having my eyes open to that also feels in some ways like the double response to the Weinstein stuff, which is on the one hand, how amazing that the subjective experience of women is now being more likely to be listened to, more likely to gain results, more likely to um, 
set new goals and to try to create change. On the other hand, the sheer pervasiveness of abject behavior and treatment across industry after industry, sector after sector, only some of which are able to be pursued through the lens of journalism. Like there's only certain kinds of industries where people are famous enough or the harm pervasive enough that reporting is the tool that can write it really makes sense. It feels like a it feels like my sense of what the lows are is also bigger than it ever was. And I worry a little bit that those two wobbling extremes will just collapse back into a mushy middle rather than tending toward progress. But why wouldn't you experience this moment as a kind of excavation of that rather than, I guess, as an exposure? You just experience it as, as an exposure of what is as opposed to like an excavation. No, I, I mean, I think it's to the good. I think it's to the yeah. good. I mean, yes, we knew it was there, but I feel like I don't think I knew the extent to which I find myself surprised by just the sheer scale of it. And 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 maybe that's naive. And I certainly think it's good. I just worry about Hannah's question about potential for backlash, about whether we can really kind of take this moment and achieve some sort of catharsis through it and find ourselves in a better place for women or whether... I mean, the backlash will be more pernicious. I think we are always going to, not always, I hope not always, I think for this foreseeable future, we are going to be swinging between these pendulums of advance and opening and retraction and retreat, right? I mean, Obama to Trump, <laughs> um, you know, the 1970s to the backlash of the 1980s that Susan Flutie chronicles in, in her book Backlash. It, it does seem to me that there are these kinds of openings that happen that do shift the culture in a meaningful way and we're in one of them now and will there be some kind of backlash retreat yeah you know because one way of thinking about it too is that to me and i wonder whether you you all think this i keep thinking the me too moment wouldn't have happened without trump right yeah in some way it's this upwelling of the national of, of a part of the national consciousness that is so shocked that this you know serial sexual harasser and otherwise problematic human being is the president of the United States that, you know, maybe that's what led Jody Cantor to double down on that story. Maybe that's what led, you know, women to say, I'm going to tell my story with Weinstein for the first time. And I think there is just this really complicated vortex of kind of energies pulling back and forth. And, you know, like you, I was completely shocked. I, I did feel like I saw something I hadn't seen before, in particular about um, how women some women in their 60s and 70s were willing to tolerate a kind of harassment that I thought we had all agreed was just not okay. And I was realized how naive I was that, no, actually, a lot of these women have tolerated their whole lives and feel fine continuing to tolerate it um, because it's too threatening to have something really different. But I feel like there's something exciting. You know, when I get really despairing, I start to think, okay, but there's this other force happening, a kind of counterforce in response to those moments of darkness being exposed. Well, it's also Is really interesting, wasn't it, to, to, to talk about Trump for another minute, to see the difference between leaving the reckoning to the whole electorate, the whole country, with, of course, the asterisks that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. But, right. you know, in our, like, crazy electoral college way, Trump triumphed, and that felt like an enormous setback. And then we have a set of allegations that start with famous, beautiful actresses finally speaking out against like someone whose behavior was truly monstrous. 
And then that devolves into this upswelling you're talking about, Megan. And the decision makers are not like every voter in the country. They are the leaders of various like companies and sectors. And it turns out that when you make it into that question, a kind of question of like individual consciousness for those executives and also a business decision, that all kinds of things were, in fact, out of bounds um, and that the consequences have reflected that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to see certain corporations out ahead of certain other institutions. It's interesting to see which sectors make more progress and to what degree that has to do with press accountability versus just the general kind of ethos of people who tend to work in that industry. I mean, I'm still waiting on the stories out of the law firms and the banks. Like, Yes. Yep. Yeah, for sure. That's from what I hear from people working there. Those conversations are uh, not progressing in the same pace that they are in uh, various uh, liberal outposts. Um, All right. A couple last questions for you guys. What headline would you hope to read by or about womankind in the next year? Hannah, why don't you go first? Hmm. Well, the obvious one is a woman runs for, you know, a woman runs for president. It runs differently. That's the obvious one. Um, But not Ivanka Trump. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> that would be different. I don't think it's what Hada had in mind. No, there are obvious ones. There's that. There was the I had the same thought about the the sort of high money places, the big money places, the places that have so far stayed out of reach of this sexual harassment thing. Yeah, you know, I think I've been really struck during this the Me Too reckoning um by the pieces by I think Rebecca Traster wrote one and um about the fact that this is, and Emily, I think you've talked about this or maybe written about it, but the fact that this is really about work, you know, I don't know if you all read the Selma Hayek piece in the Times, which I found oh my just God, that was incredibly yeah, so that devastating. Was really, really and, you know, powerful. What was so interesting was that there wasn't an actual sexual encounter. I mean, there were attempted sexual encounters, but that the wrong that was done to her was that she was not able to make the work she wanted to make. And I guess in some way, the headline I want to see is like, women get to do their work. Like, that's the headline. <laughs> it's not an that's exciting one, one, except Megan. it's the most exciting one. And that's that's what we're, is really at stake here is that we're not able to do the things we want and are capable of doing still, you know. Do you all want yeah. a woman to challenge Trump for the presidency? I mean, I think like the fantasy is a Wonder Woman fantasy of that person winning. But I've talked to a lot of people lately, male and female, who have said that the best person to challenge Trump is not a woman, and I have been wrestling with that question. Uh, I've totally been wrestling with that question, too. I was going to ask you guys that as well. You mean because it will set up a culture war, and if the woman loses? Because I'm afraid, and I don't want Trump to be president anymore, and and I'm tempted to conclude from the last year that a man should run because a man would be more likely to win. And I don't want that to be my conclusion, and I don't like that that is... An instinct I have, but it is absolutely an instinct I have. But I mean, we why tra- do you we've... think that, Julia? Because a lot of the energy, I mean, I do agree with you, Megan. I don't think it's far-fetched. I think entirely this sexual harassment, the way it's exploded, has to do with Trump. It's like the one gift that yeah. history <laughs> will remember Trump giving this country. And I wonder if um, if if that's just kind of an energy to tap well, into. Well, to be fair, that's a concern that I was feeling 
more significantly last summer. And in fact, we discussed it in a couple slate editorial meetings and Michelle Goldberg wrote a story to us about this question and how various folks were thinking about it and different candidates who might be running. Um, And I do feel differently about it now. I mean, I'm not, I think I'm still wrestling, Emily. I'm not quite sure where I land, but the counterforce of taking women and their work seriously, which is really at the heart of why these harassment stories matter so much and what, you know, the, the the question of education and awareness. And I now understand how this could have made you feel that's so mind blowing and all the apologies, but that really is meaningful. Like the thing you want, the thing we've talked about sometimes with Trump that's so galling about the way he talks about and seems to think about women is that they all seem to fall into the camp of either like fuckable or not. And if they're not, they're just worthless. And like, that's the only type of value that a woman might be able to provide that that's most galling about his misogyny and his worldview. Like we're having a huge months long conversation about women and their value and contributions and what's keeping them from doing that. I mean, I think the way you frame it, Megan is so smart. Uh, Maybe it's, maybe it's time. It depends on the woman, right? I mean, yeah, because I yeah. share the once bitten, twice shy feeling. Like I don't twice bitten, thrice shy. Whatever, <laughs> once bitten, yeah, four hundred times bitten. On the other hand, men have been uh, running for so long that I you know. can't draw any conclusions. So that's the problem in and of itself. I mean, you know, and I think we're it's it's a little bit like being a gender traitor, not in the Handmaid's Tale sense. Um, to say like, no, I don't. Let's go for the safe option of having a man. Um. It really depends on the candidate. I mean, I just I feel like with this election, the, so much is at stake that where in another election I might between two roughly, you know, equal candidates, maybe the man is a little bit stronger as a candidate. I might have gone for the woman because I felt like some sense of energized. No, let's maybe in this election, if in that situation, I would feel like, no, the best possible candidate has to be our candidate because I'm he cannot win again. I don't know. What do I you was- think, Emily? Well, I was noticing, I think it's Mike Pence who's been talking about the presidency as broad-shouldered or the Trump administration as broad-shouldered. And that makes me want a woman to come in with whatever (laughs) size shoulders and like prove that there are many ways of exhibiting strength. Um, That's what the shoulder pads are for. Exactly. (laughs) But (laughs) But I thought we could just stop wearing them. You know what, women? There aren't a million options. That's right. That's That's right. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a couple of great candidates. There are a couple. I mean, there's just, there's going to be the who is it and what are the identity characteristics and not just race and gender, but state and locality and what kind of work experience are you bringing? Are you an exciting outsider or a you know, up through the system person. And then there's just going to be the internal political fight on the left about the the Bernie camp versus the centrists. And you can find people of different identity characteristics in both of those camps and how that's all going to shake out is hard to anticipate from here. I do think it's important too but, to remember that one of the reasons that, or maybe the reason Hillary Clinton had trouble um, parrying Trump on issues of sexual abuse and misconduct was her history with Bill Clinton, right? There's no other person for whom Steve Bannon could have trotted out these female accusers who in fact had not gotten their due and, um, you know, really changed that dynamic. So I guess like that's the one spitten twice shy part that we should be careful not to pay too much attention to. Although I do share with you, Megan, this sort of like feeling that that, Hillary was not the best position to um, parry Trump on exactly the front you would want a woman to be an effective responder. 
you know that thing you said about um about why X X Factor was useful? Like you had you you were sort of hesitating. There were certain things you didn't want to express, and then and then there's kind of a legitimized space for you to express them, parts of yourself that you hadn't really realized were there and wanted to speak. I feel like the sexual harassment stuff has done that for a lot of women. Yeah. Um, a lot of women who felt hesitant about certain things, let's say hesitant about running for office, hesitant about sharing a story, hesitant about doing a lot of things. And 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 does that and so that so this showed up in the public sphere because there was a way in which women weren't sure how to be, like how to be when they were running for office, how subjective to be, how woman-ish to be. Um and I feel like the, the, the that's that eases now. Yeah. Um and maybe you maybe you get a woman of a different generation who's just more at ease um running, for whom it's just more natural uh to be out there speaking like a woman, speaking from a subjective place, whatever it is. And I think that helps a lot. I think that's so right. And I think it goes back to Emily's point, too, which is that, you know, Clinton brought all this baggage that was specific to her marriage and to Clinton and to what didn't get said in the conversation and, um, you know, in, when he was president around his female accusers. But it, she also just is of a different generation where she was trying to be the first woman doing so many things or was trying to be a certain kind of woman, you know, a certain kind of wife to the governor of Arkansas at a moment when you couldn't be that kind of wife. And it's just there's something kind of hard, you know, it it really, I think, wounded and damaged her in ways that we talked about, Emily, when we were talking about her memoir, um, in ways that I find kind of moving, but I think made it harder for her to be a good candidate, hard for her to be at ease, as you're saying, Hannah. And I do think it'll be really interesting to see if there are women who don't have that particular baggage as well. This has been a wonderful double XE XX factory conversation. Thank you guys all so much for joining me to reminisce about XX factor and double X uh, and for all of the conversations that you've fostered on slate XX factor and double X over time. And that we look forward to continuing in various exciting new formats. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.